Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in the United States Armed Forces. On this series, jointly presented by Supply Chain Now and Vets to Industry, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and stories from serving. We talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector, and we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good afternoon. Scott Luton with you here on Veteran Voices. Thanks for tuning in. On today's show, we're talking with a veteran that's doing some huge things in the world of digital transformation, really across global business world. Uh, and he's got some outstanding stories that I know that you're going to enjoy, so stay tuned. Hey, quick programming note before we get started. Uh, this program is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Simply search for Veteran Voices and subscribe so you don't miss conversations just like this. Okay, no further ado. Let's bring in really a repeat guest. We really enjoyed uh, Dan's expertise in a couple of different shows here at Supply Chain Now. First time on Veteran Voices, but Dan Reeve, a veteran of the British Army and the Wisconsin National Guard. Dan, how you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? Doing great. Great to reconnect with you. And as right. much as we've enjoyed, you know, we were picking your brain on, on several episodes on, on the mothership, so to speak, on digital transformation and order to cash and, right. and driving, you know, optimizing those processes across global business. And through those conversations, we learned about your veteran uh, experiences and some outstanding stories. So I'm really excited to share some of those on this different series. So look forward to today's conversation. So for starters, let's humanize, let's level set a little bit. Okay. Tell us a little bit where you're from, and, and you've got some great anecdotes for your upbringing. So please, please do share. Kind of interesting that when I first came to the U.S., actually the first time I ever came to the U.S. was an exchange between the uh, Royal Engineers and the Air National Guard of Oakfield, Wisconsin. Mm. And it was probably applicable because I later ended up coming to work in the U.S., in Wisconsin, met, my, met and married my enjoy Wisconsin family. And Wisconsin really is very similar to where I'm from. I'm from the rural part of England. I'm from, you know, they, they don't call us hicks or hillbillies, but they do sort of slightly derogatory talk about us being farmers over there in East Anglia, so Norwich, Norfolk, that's where I grew up. Yeah, not, not too far. If you can think of London, two hours, two and a half hours north of London, if you can think of the bump right there, right by the coast. Sounds gorgeous to me. And, and did you grow up on a farm? No, I grew up in the middle of the city. I, uh, so I, I grew up in Norwich, north, uh, which is the capital there. Uh, I think once upon a time, if you go way back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it was the second city. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't always London that was the capital. I think York was the capital at one point, and uh, Norwich was the second. So I grew up in the city. When I was 12, I applied to go to a semi-military boarding school. It wasn't a, a purely military school, but a lot of the families there were deployed in Germany, for example, and they needed to send their children somewhere. So it was very good for academics, very good for sport. I wouldn't say I was an elite athlete, but, but the people I was playing with were. Anyway, I wrote to Margaret Thatcher. My mother kind of put me up to it and said, you know, you need to access power. You need to sell. The, the, the. So I, we wrote to Margaret Thatcher. I said, you know, I'm really keen on a, a career in the military. That was all I ever wanted to do since the age of four. And um, I'm not sure if the local schools will give me the opportunity I need. Anyway, her private secretary wrote back saying, we think the local schools will be quite sufficient. 
funnily enough, at the end of that week, my scholarship was approved. Wow. So, and that was a boarding school out in the country, lots of land. They had a great military cadet program. Um, so very early on, I got out camping and shooting and rock climbing and all the things I came to love. So you've got friends in high places. I've lost a letter. I can't believe, unfortunately, obviously, Margaret pa Fa Thatcher passed, her, passed over. In the letter, she said, I've spoken to Margaret this morning. We think you'll do just fine. Uh, I I'm sure it's a coincidence that, you know, that week my scholarship was approved. And I didn't think I had a hope in, you know, really a very strong chance of getting a scholarship. So it was, for anybody thinking about a career in sales, that shows sometimes it is worth being bold. And, and you, you know, they say you have to access power. So did you, did you know at an early age that you wanted to serve in the military? Very, very early on. My, uh, my, my, my father was in the Royal Air Force, and there's a squadron nearby. Oh, sorry, there was a Royal Air Force base nearby, many bases, but the base that really I grew up upon and used to love going to the air shows was uh, RAF Coltishall, Royal Air Force Coltishall, mm -hmm. the Sepicat Jaguar, which was a ground attack aircraft, um, it was used in the Gulf War. I think the Indian, still, the Indian Air Force still uses it. The French used it. And it's a funny thing because if you ever see, they can operate in the air-to-air -air role. They've put the sidewinders on top of the wings. On okay. top. You normally see them do that, you know. So, yeah. So there were Sepicat Jaguars there. So they had a big impact. Each four was running around with a helmet most of the time. Yeah. Mm. So, so you had an early fascination with military aircraft, I'm hearing. Is that right? Yes, predominantly military aircraft, but most things green, yes. <laughs> I thought I recalled from one of your earlier appearances with us that you were playing in a cockpit of an aircraft. Yeah, it was a separate, it was a Jaguar, and uh, it was in the hangar, and I don't think they do this anymore for health and safety reasons. <laughs> put six-year-old kids into the, um, into the pilot seat. And I, I can remember that there's all these buttons and knobs anywhere. And anybody who's been around a fighter jet knows that there's, you know, there's, the, there's a couple of those buttons and knobs and levers that are black and yellow. Sure enough, I was pulling on the ejection handle. And the pins, you know, the, the, the safety pins were in there, but the officer, the maintenance officer, saw what I was doing, came running over, and he was screaming at Everybody, including my dad, is like, the bloody pins are going to come out. You know, he's like, they're his big, I'm like, well, this ejection thing looks cool. I didn't really know what it was, but I thought, I'm going to wiggle it. I'm going to try and pull it. So um, I think that could have been a little bit embarrassing for the Air Force had a six-year-old ejected through the hangar. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I bet. You know, you always need a great maintenance officer and, and, right. and maintenance men and women. You know, I was, I was in the Air Force as well. Right. And it, my first base was at Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina, where I'm from. Right. Joined the Air Force, see the world, they say, and then I got stationed, my first permanent station, uh, about 90 minutes from where I'm from. So it makes no sense. So we were, I'm not sure what we were doing. It wasn't a fod walk. We were on the flight line for, for, for some reason. And I'm talking to a buddy of mine, but walking straight, of course, real safe. And I almost walked right into the nose cone of an F-16. Right. If it wasn't for... A, a tried and true maintenance officer that stops me. I mean, I'm probably just a couple feet from walking smack into this right. F-16. So, yeah. hey, seems like we, we both have been spared from disaster by the, the great men and women that maintain all these aircraft. That reminds me of a story in Iraq when um, I'm driving along in some, near Basra, and out of the corner of my eye, I see all this dust, and I turn, 
And I said, Challenger 2. And I don't know if there's some young, young guy driving or young lady driving or whatever. It was a full, full speed. And I don't know if they do, what, 40, 45, something like that. And I see at the corner of my eye this Challenger 2 just flying across the desert. I'm, we're going to pick up this prisoner of war. And I'm looking, and I'm like, yeah, we, we're going to intercept. You know, there was a quick decision made about, well, I think I have the right way. And then I realized, well, no, he's got 130 tons of Chobham armor and the main battle, main 130 mm gun, gun or whatever it is. And I think I'm going to let him win. Yeah, go on then. <laughs> it, was, it was like, whoa. So I want to talk more about your experiences because that was in, I was in Iraq. Is that right? Mm, mm. And so let's talk, let's talk about when you joined the military first, and then we'll, we'll talk more about your, your experiences while in. Tell us, when did you officially join, and, and what were the, those early months like? Originally, I joined in 94. No, I joined, yes, yeah, so I joined in 94. I actually joined as I went, so I was doing several nights a week and virtually every weekend when I was at uh, university. And I joined as a combat engineer or sapper, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a word, French, uh, Latin word. My regiment was part of the 7th Engineer Regiment, was part of the uh, Royal Engineers. Um, and we talked about this before. So the Royal Engineers, their job is to um, help the Army move, survive, move, live, fight. And move, live, fight. That's right. And, and, and our, our particular task for the, at that time was supporting the Harrier Force. So the Harriers, the whole purpose was we grew up at that time. We were trained to expect to fight. Uh, Soviet armor, and we were being trained to, you know, recognize Soviet air, air, air equipment, and so we, we always expected that we were going to get deployed to go and fight against the Eastern Bloc. You know, that isn't really what happened. I mean, you know, originally, though, we were, we were trained to help the Harriers move, and we would go and build mobile air, mobile runways for them in forests, or shelter hides to keep the, the, the avionics safe, not, you don't want the avionics to cook in the sun. And um, then, as combat engineers, if the, if the Royal Air Force needed a bridge or anything else built or an engine test pad for the helicopters, we'd build that. The great thing was that most of the time that meant we ate pretty well. My, my father had said to me, why are you going in the Army? He says, I've seen what happens with you grunts. You know, I've, I've done the NATO exercises in, in Norway. And he said, you're going to get shot at first, you're going to be sleeping outside in the cold, and you're going to be eating terrible food. Mostly he was right, and I should have listened. However, because we were attached to the Air Force, uh, we, we, we were really kind of seconded, and we, we served the Air Force, Harrier Force. A lot of the time, it wasn't too bad, because we were right. always very close to an airfield. And, and, and you know, the, what my experience was the, the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Air Force, conditions weren't too bad. Yeah. Now, the Harrier that you referenced a couple of times, that is the vertical takeoff and landing craft. Is that right? Yeah, we, it's the, you know, it, unfortunately, shame is retired from service it, in the British military, I think. I believe the U.S. Marines still use the, uh, a, a derivative, a version of that aircraft. So, yeah, it had vertical takeoff capability and short takeoff capability. Much of the time when they came in to land on our, we'd spend all Saturday and Sunday and Monday building these runways. When they came in, they would typically land vertically but take off and use the whole runway and, and, and a short takeoff. That makes sense. That makes sense. I want to say that the F-35, the, the, the new joint, relatively new, mm. is a couple of years old, I think mm. they've made some, some VTOL additions. And, of course, the Osprey, which had a notorious development record, 
those have been in service now amazingly. Gosh, I bet I bet it's been ten years. Um, and that's wow. that for some of our listeners. The Osprey is a really unique aircraft because it's a prop-driven VTOL in short takeoff and landing. Uh, but the whole, as I recall, the whole wing rotates so that the props, you know, they're, they're, it's like a normal plane. Um, however, in, in short, tight, constrained areas, the wing adjusts and it can land just like a helicopter. It's really it's fascinating technology. All right, so we're clearly we're both aviation nerds here, uh, Dan. That's okay. Right. Let's talk about some of the people. That you, we've gotten a sense now of what you did in the military. Right. Talk about some of the people that you worked with or you worked for or some of the folks that might have worked for you. Tell us about some of the people that really made your time really special. Two that immediately come to mind. Uh, let me talk about my best man first. Interesting story. When we first met, we hated one another. Uh, we were in the same troop or platoon. So in, 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 the, in the Royal Engineers, we talk about troops and squadrons. And then above that, you have a regiment. And a regiment could be 600 or so guys uh, and girls and, and the squadron, 130, 150. He was in my troop. The troop is 30, 35 people. When he joined, I, and I ranked him. It was kind of like a squad leader. And uh, it was a really interesting exercise because Rob, he grew up on a farm. And like most farmers, farm boys I know, he, he can turn his hand to anything. And I think... I don't know, perhaps I was a little bit arrogant and young and, 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 and full of myself, and uh, we got put together one, one, on a survival exercise. And it doesn't take too long until, you know, you're cold, you're hungry, you've been shivering for a few hours, you've been, we just escaped. We've been hooded and cuffed and been through, you know, a little bit of roughing up, so to speak, and then they, they turned us loose, and we ran away, and they'd stolen all of our clothes and you know, all our shelter, we built again, and there we are, freezing cold, wet, two, two, two guys that don't like each other. And I think that was just such an interesting experience to change one's mindset that actually, is it really that person? Is it me? Well, what, what, what is it about that person? He's just, he or she's just trying to get through the day or the mission like, I right, maybe I should give him a little bit of a break. Maybe he gave me a little bit of a break, I gave him a little bit of a break. And, it, and for 20 years, he's been one of the most dependable people in my life. Mm. So I think there's, there's something in that. And, and I think, would that happen in civilian street? Maybe. It's certainly, you know, my passions are things like mountaineering and hunting. And, and the military gave us that opportunity to, 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 to get over our prejudices and, and come to realize we liked one another. You know? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And Rob's, what's Rob's last name? Shell. Shell. Gel, yeah. His dad was a major in the British Army as well. It's a side story for you. So I'm there at Christmas at his dad's house a few years ago, and there's a big anti-tank round in, in, in the hallway. It was called, and it was called a wombat. It was basically an, it was a, just a, a heavy 130-millimeter shell that they, in the 70s you'd fire those, and they would just plow through a, um, a tank or armor. This is live. It's a lot, and it's been in the house for about 20 years, and I get talking, I'm like, is that thing live? And it's like, well, yeah, we just don't, make, we just don't public, make, 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 make big noise about it, Dan, you know, so, so he, his dad is quite eccentric, his dad is a character, and, and I think he, he inherited a lot of his, sort of, the, the boldness and his capability from his dad, for sure. I love that, and going back to your earlier point, I think that is 
That's one thing I, I wish that more of the private sector would learn and embrace from the military because, you know, you're, you're, you're in the units or here in the Air Force, you flight together, and you're not going anywhere, and, and folks you, you see eye to eye with and folks you don't see eye to eye with oftentimes aren't going anywhere. And, you know, that has a great way of just um, not only getting you focused around carrying the mission forward, but to your point, for whatever it is, because I'm not a psychologist, but you, you can get over uh, the differences and, and, and how you view the world or, or, or different positions or whatever, and you get over those prejudices, as you put it. And that's, right. a, that's one of the things I miss about active duty military service. Um, I think when I was in England, you drive 30 miles in England and the accent changes. And so there were people with different cultures and accents and you'd, you'd be on courses and suddenly you're mixed with people from different regiments and corps and squadrons. I used to shoot for the, uh, the, my regiment on my corps. And suddenly you're getting exposed to people from all different regiments. Right. Uh, going to breakfast with the Gurkhas. Um, who are soldiers that fight for the British Army from Nepal. And it was, it just suddenly being part of that melting pot is great. And then the other thing about the Royal Engineers and several parts of the British Army is you, you can regularly be walking around and next minute there's a chat from South Africa or Zimbabwe or New Zealand, uh, you know, Commonwealth countries, and their soldiers are serving alongside or they've been loaned to the British Army and vice versa. So I also thought that was cool. Yeah. You know, I agree. Completely yeah. agree. By the way, some of my frankest, most cultural learning moments was when I was in the military, right? I learned right. about Korean culture. I learned about uh, Vietnamese cuisine, about where uh, my comrades came from and their family traditions and, and all that. You know, for how I grew up, you know, small town, small southern town, those are some big learnings for me and, and, and right. uh, really had an impact. So Rob was one of the two folks that really had a big impact on your experience. Who was the other? We had a staff sergeant, John Patterson, who kind of took me under his wing almost like a, like a, a second father. When you're younger, sometimes you can, be, you, can, you can have a chip on your shoulder. I think maybe I had a chip on my shoulder or you can have the wrong attitude. And he kind of molded me, and, and, and I had a lot of sort of drive and energy, and I turned up to the squadron wanting to be, to be a rock climbing and mountaineering instructor and lots of things I wanted to go and do. And he says, well, first, you've got to kind of earn your way. Go and be a physical training instructor and bring that back. Go and earn your way. Bring us value. And then we'll let you go and do the things you want to do. So he kind of set me on the right path and made me sort of have the right attitude. And, yeah, so it was having a, you know, a staff sergeant who wasn't going to take any, any of the wrong attributes or traits or, for me, it was good. You know, he's like, knock me into shape a little bit. And, you know, I had a massive respect for him because I knew when it came to combat engineering and all the, the planning and, and all the different missions we'd do, and he just, he had it. He had the experience and he knew how to do it. And mm. um, we, we all need someone like that in our right. journeys, military or otherwise. Right. Let's talk about some of your experiences and we'll talk about accomplishments. You mentioned being in Iraq, deployed. Yeah. Tell me about that. Was that, when was that? March 2003, we were mobilized. I thought I was going skiing in February. So just to set the scene, uh, I was in the reserves for 12 years, the British Army Reserves for 12 years. And mm -hmm. I get, basically, I remember having a chat with a friend of mine. She was a paramedic herself and my, my best man. We were supposed to go skiing in the south of France. And I remember having a conversation with those folks. And I said, do you, do you think there's any chance we're going to get mobilized? No, no, we'd have heard about it. It turns out my best man, he knew we were going. 
friend of mine who was a major told him, but told him not to tell anybody else. So he, he didn't even tell his best friend, oh, yeah, we're going. The, the, hey, loose lips sink ships, right? The top two names on the list were mine and his name. They were the, finally the first two names put on the list, and uh, he didn't tell me. And so, so we booked a ski holiday, and I'm thinking, yeah, we're going. Didn't go. A month before that, he and I, through the regiment, had been to, I did quite a lot of mountaineering and outdoor activities. The British Army is really big about you can always be fighting, but you can train for adverse conditions. So you can go and do sporting activities. You can put, test yourself by mountaineering, hiking, whatever sport pursuit you, you really care about. When I got loaned to the National Guard, I think some of the stories I tell them, like, wow, really? Your military paid for that? So we were, in, we were stood on a peak in Nepal in the Annapurna circuit, and we heard this avalanche come down, and I thought it was a fighter jet. It was so loud. So we're on top of this peak, and we're like, wow, this is amazing. We're looking across at Annapurna South, and I said to him, you know what? This is going to come, come at a cost. We're here for five weeks. We're getting paid. This doesn't come free. There's going to be something. You know what? Two months later, there we were in Iraq, and I hooked at him and said, I told you. I told you that there'd be, there'd be something to, you know, we'd have to pay the piper. So I, ended up in, I volunteered to go to um, uh, Operation um, called it. When we first went into Iraq, I I felt it was important. You know, the, Tony Blair had said, "Well, our country could be um, at risk of Scud missiles, and we they might have the range of the UK. They certainly would have the range of Cyprus, which is part of our country." Mm. There's, there's talk about chemical weapons, and and I wanted to go. And I, as my friends were being, you know, we, we received a letter saying, "In nine days, you're gone." So that was quite short. Mm. But I really. I actually fought to go because I, the last thing I wanted was to, you know, to be left behind and not to go with my buddies. Right. Um, How long were you in Iraq? Six months. And what part of the country? Well, we started off in northern Kuwait, so a couple of air bases. We were at Ali al-Salem yep. Air Base, and we were getting fitted up there. And, and Initially, it was a little slow. You know, initially... The invading forces had gone in a week earlier, and we were itching and dying to get in there. And we were getting scud attacks and aerial uh, missile attacks, and Chinese silkworm attacks most days because Saddam had been there in the first Gulf War. A macabre story for you is I was playing squash most nights, and one night I was playing squash with my sergeant major, and we got talking afterwards, and he said, "Well, you do know Saddam had this base before, mm. yeah." Well. Didn't you see? And he said to me, "Didn't you see the pock marks in the squash court? There were, you know, there were some pock uh, marks on the walls, as if somebody had taken a, a chisel, made a hole." What actually happened is Saddam's goons, so to speak, his military had got lined up the uh, Kuwaiti military, uh, the, all the warrant officers, and uh, shot them in that squash. So suddenly it was like, "Ah, hang on a minute, this isn't a game anymore. This is right. uh, these, these folks are." There's some injustices have taken taken part around here. You know? mm. Mm. Six months in, and then is that was that a standard tour of duty to, with the uh, British Army? Yeah, it was interesting because typically the British do six month tours. The, the Air Force does it shorter. I think two or three three months. It was very interesting because I think the was it the Third Infantry Brigade was there, and they they had just been extended. They they you know, spent a couple of months training, expecting a year long deployment, and then they got extended another six months or so. That was you know it made me feel very grateful that we weren't being deployed for that long. I was like, wow, right. I wasn't married at the time and I didn't have children, so 
you know, kudos to those folks that, that, that did, were out there with husbands, wives, children. That, you know, that mm. was a sacrifice that they put in. That get often, I find, gets overlooked. Even my fellow veterans, uh, as I've sat down through a variety of these conversations, you think about, and especially when you have wives talk about their husbands deployed and vice versa, and, right. and they talk about what the family did while the, you know, that person, in some case, uh, while that person was deployed, and it's just any country, you know, around the world, certainly the U.S. and, and right. uh, the U.K. that deploy quite a bit. It's amazing the sacrifices that are made in service. So I remember seeing one of my toughest soldiers. I was talking to me, a big, bad, tough lad, great guy. And uh, I remember we were in Iraq, and we'd gone back to Kuwait for an evening or two, and he calls home. And I remember seeing him crying, just mm. stated, because his children wouldn't talk to him on the phone. Because mm. so mad that daddy had gone off and left them. When we got home, wives were there was bitterness too because some of them were like, "Well, we didn't expect you in the national guard or the it was known as the territorial army, the British reserves, to actually go away and just leave us like this." There was, you know, you started to see the the emotional investment people make. Yeah, it has its toll, and that that I didn't have children at the time, but I remember feeling so bad for my friend because, wow, I was thinking, wow, you know, that, that look at that guy, he's. He's the toughest guy I know, and he's, he's broken down. You know, I felt terrible for him. Yeah. Wow, and to carry that day in and day right. out, uh, right. I can only imagine. All right, so let, let's shift gears a bit. Uh, I want to certainly touch on your how you transitioned to the Wisconsin National Guard. But before we right. do, your, the accomplishment, when you look back at your time in the British Army, you know, what, what are, what's that one or two key accomplishments you look back and you're most proud of? I think the, that I was able to... Getting to represent the regiment and the army, the, the regiment, quite a lot of shooting competitions. That was great. I was getting paid to shoot. I was getting paid to represent and compete. I was in my nirvana. I'm like, you're paying me to do what I love to do. That was fun. I very much enjoyed vaporizing cars and bridges and getting paid to do that too. <laughs> that was fun. My regiment would typically do a loan to the U.S. every one or two years. And we went to Wisconsin. I remember getting on the uh, Air, uh, C-130 RAF Mildenhall in England. We flew to yep. the Wars and had the best party with a, a, a National Guard unit ever that night. We were late getting on the planes. We were also staggering drunk. I blame that on the, uh, the, the U.S. Army unit. It was their fault. Uh, they were forcing tequila down us all night. That was a great experience for me, is, is coming to a different country. The hospitality that they put on in Wisconsin was incredible. So friendly. Um, invited us in to meet their families and their homes. And I just I fell in love with America right there. I'd never been to America before. Mm. I fell in love with America. But also, I think highlights for me, I look back on Iraq, and I did enjoy it. There were some tough times, but I remember when we first crossed the border, and there was a little boy, and he's waving a flag, a Jack flag, and, you know, his little choke. You, you were like, well, yeah, yeah, that's why we're here. You know, at that time, there were people, well, great, you're here. Right. You know, that changed. But, um, and then all the, the mountaineering, they, they, they really gave me the opportunity to climb in, in, in all over the, the Europe and Two trips to the Himalayas paid for by the military. And then one of those trips, I was sitting there drinking tea with the, the Indian Army on the edge of the Himalayas, just sitting there talking about life. And so getting to meet different countries, different people, the hospitality that was shown to me, I got sick in Iraq, in, in Iraq and it was the, uh, <laughs> I went into the, the hospital tent and there were three of the most attractive young ladies I've ever seen taking care of me, mopping my brow. Gave me a shot and, a, and an IV, and I woke up and there were like three of the biggest, burliest male nurse dudes I'd ever met. I'm like, well, well where'd, the, where'd the ladies go? You know, they're like, well, you just focus on getting better. So uh, um, I think the hospitality 
getting to travel, getting to meet other nation, other nations, other militaries. I thought that was just great. I agree. A lot of tons of camaraderie. Right. We had uh, Singapore when I was in, in – um, well, when I was at uh, McCollum Air Force Base in Kansas, but also Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, right. We had Singaporean partners that were operating refuelers uh, in both locations, I believe. I could be getting mixed up a bit. But the relationships, I mean, you're eager to bond with folks that wore the uniform you know, from other countries. And it, it, it just neat, neat exchanges there, to your point. Before we talk transition kind of to the private sector, I want to talk about Wisconsin. You, you, you've talked about it already and how much you enjoy right. it. Is there one thing that when you moved there, because you, you were living there, right, when, when you joined the National Guard? No, well, what happened is I, I transferred from my civilian job, my civilian job. I'd done well, and I'd always wanted to go to Australia. But then I called, I think I called the general and said, sir, forgive me, but is there any chance I could, I'm going to transfer uh, with my civilian job to Madison in, in, a, in the U.S.? Is there any way I can be loaned or trained with the National Guard? And he was like, well, who are you? And, and, and yes, good and well done, and good luck. Off you go. Oh, okay. So, so I managed to pull that off. And that was fun. So, yeah, I, I was, it was almost at the same time I transferred, straight away I actually had something that I kind of, almost immediately I had something that I was used to because I was able to go to drill. Mm. And that was kind of nice because here I am suddenly a fish out of water in a completely different country, speaking, you know, with a different accent. But I've still got a little bit of the military that, uh, even though I walked around in a British Army uniform and everyone's like, well, do I salute him? No, I'm not sure who he is. The reality was there was something that I, I had, there was a rock that I could rely upon, you know, and, mm. and I had good friends through it. I think the other thing is, another learning lesson for me was, in the British Army, been around for many, many hundreds of years, perhaps a little bit of arrogance where we had this preconceived notion that the Americans would just pull a trigger and shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> and yes, I think Americans typically are better armed and more firepower, but I was very, very impressed with the professionalism, the, the planning, always doing an after-action review, after-drill. I was really impressed, and it made me change my perception. Mm. To me say, well, just because you've always heard that these guys are cowboys or whatever, actually, they might be better at some of the things they do than the British Army. The British Army's its strengths. The U.S. military got its, its strengths, too. Mm. And so it forced me to, to let go of preconceived ideas. It's always a benchmarking opportunity. Right. Um, and, and the first time I heard uh, someone kind of comparing contrast the U.S. Army way of doing things and the British Army way of doing things. There's a ton of ton to learn. Obviously, there's a special relationship there. So let's talk about one quick question. We're going to talk transition. Did you ever eat a butter bur burger any, at, at any moment when you were part of Wisconsin? I think uh, I, I, uh, cheese curds. Burger. I think I may have done it at least once. Uh, you know, I've got to be careful in case my in-laws ever hear this. And I think, is it Culver's is the, is, is the chain? I think, I think you're right. Yeah, Culver's, they, they do ice cream and butter burgers. There's a lot of tasty things come out of Wisconsin. You've just got to eat, uh, eat them I, in, um, uh, what's the word? You know, moderation. Moderation, yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk transition. One, one of our big right. things we always focus on in these conversations because there's so much, you know, I transitioned out of the Air Force back in 2002. I was not a combat veteran. I had a four-year degree, even though I was enlisted, and I had a strong family and friend network that I transitioned into. Yet, right. 
despite those advantages that, that many folks that transition out of the, at least the enlisted military oftentimes don't have, especially after, you know, 18 years or 19 years of war, I still struggled to find that footing. I didn't know how the whole recruiting and, and interviewing right. thing went. Um, I didn't have a professional network, right? Never thought about building out a professional network. And so I, I struggled. I, I finally found a job five or six months later. Right. Um, so what we've heard so much about that I can definitely relate to is a lot of transition challenges. Even today when corporate America and, cor- and, and the corporate world in general has gotten – they've put in some action behind veteran support. They've, there's big hiring initiatives both for veterans and veteran spouses. That's good news. Um, there's new programs and, and improved programs to help prepare vets before our men and women in uniform before they exit and prepare them for transition that's gotten stronger from what i've heard yeah. yet some of the experience a lot of the experiences and stories we continue to hear are those of challenge and those where they're still trying to find their way find a good job where they're not underemployed and where there's the hiring managers that want to lean in and understand rather than shy away because they can't connect with that veteran experience a veteran journey so talk to us about your your transition uh, what it was like, and, and was it more challenging or less challenging than you had anticipated? To answer that, I have to be realistic with the audience because my transition, now I was in the guard, so my transition was after the summers or many weekends, I transitioned from being a member of a Royal Engineer, Combat Engineer Squadron to then Monday morning going back to a sales job. Mm. I was often having to do that transition. You've got to adapt to where you are, but you've also got to take the confidence and the strength and the belief, and so... I would take that into the military, and then the military, when I went back to work, there'd be things I did with those folks that were so hard and physically different, difficult, and you had lots of planning. Belief. I think you have to take belief in yourself into what you're going to do next. The, the coming home from Iraq was difficult. The relationship blew up. Okay, we just that was moving you on to the next step in life. You know, now I've got a wife and two children. I'm very happy with it. I'm super grateful to have them in my life is the right way to say it. I think... The problem with the military sometimes when you get deployed, especially as you and, and I'd be on the receiving end, my, my, my ex, she was deployed. When you are in deployed, you think the world just stays the same. Traditions and things just stay the same. But the, the planet is still turning. The world is still moving. And you have to sort of learn to be flexible and adapt. And I think many people do learn that in the military, to be flexible and to adapt and just go with it. More recently in my role now as, as, a, as a sales director, I think I'm Ultimately, there's about 30 or 35 reports that report up through management, and, and my job is to support them and try and help them be successful. We've been hiring, um, when I looked across, I was really pleased we did a podcast recently. I think there were seven or eight of, of, of us in the company in the U.S. that are veterans, all across the board, different different walks of life. I tend to see veterans that they're, they often be humble, they'll be humble, they'll, they'll, they'll rip up trees and work hard. What can I say? I mean, I think my advice to veterans would be reach out to your network, understand the challenges people have gone through already, talk to folks in industry and just try and understand what's your job like, what does it mean, what do you do, what are the skills you do, what are books you read. I don't think it makes sense to do your 20 years, for example, and never have any awareness of what the civilian world is about. The them and us. And I've seen that, and I think that doesn't always help. Whereas... There are people I know who have had military careers, you know, full 20, 25-year careers, and they understand the civilian world too. They, they don't box themselves in. They're open right. to learning about well, what, is, 
a great analogy. A friend of mine, he came, he came to my to Esker. He worked for me as a software sales rep. He'd been an attack helicopter pilot, flying the Lynx, seven tours of duty, worked with me for three, three, three or four years. Then he went back, was flying for the CIA and the British Army, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, in Afghanistan, in Poland, in, in, in all over the place. And now he's a, he's, a, he's a helicopter pilot for the Northern Ireland Police Service. Wow. And, and he's got some stories to tell. Well, he turned up at my wedding wearing his, uh, you know, his, 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 his number ones, his, his, his outfit, and medals from here to here, and everybody loved him. So, uh, yeah, but, but what Dave has is flexibility. You could have put that, you could have, he could have been a school teacher, he was, he was an attack helicopter pilot, he was humble, he worked hard, he had confidence in himself, but you, he, he never came across as, oh, I'm a military guy in the blinkers and that's all I do. I mean, if you're a military person, he was interested in what you had to do and what your role was and, and, and what you brought to the table. But he was also very open. So, well, what is it you, know, what is it you do in supply chain? What is it you do in finance? What, what's that involved? He could have sat at the table with anybody, any, and he can, any walk of life. And I think a lot of it is because he's curious and he's humble. Such a, a simple but powerful lesson. Um, I would add, when it comes to um, you know, that professional network, you know, to, to any veterans that may be listening, of course, LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn is free for a year for the LinkedIn Plus subscription right. for veterans, I yeah. believe. But regardless, uh, look for veteran networking groups. And, and as you're, as you're, if you've identified what you're looking to do, try to identify veterans in the space and connect with them. And when you connect, send them a note that you're trying to build out your professional community and you're starting with veterans. Right. Some veterans are very, very willing to engage that way. They may not be able to right. sit down and right. get a phone call with you or something. You know, right. But build out that 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 network and, and make those connections. The other thing well, we just hired I just hired a guy who did that with me. Hmm. And ironically, he's like, "Oh, can I pick your brains? I'm leaving uh, Devon. He, Devon just joined us. He's like, I'm leaving the uh, military soon, and would be interested in talking to people. You know, and I see you've got 20 years in sales. And I was at first I was like, "Well, what advice can I give him? <laughs> and 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 just because he connected, had a chat, got to know him." Where, where are you in your journey? Well, soon I'm going to be looking for a job. Oh, maybe we should find one for you. You know, yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. And sales platoon. You, you mentioned something pre-show about sales platoon. Tell us about what that is. Yeah, so there's a, um, an organization in Chicago, Rally, who runs that organization. Uh, it, it has, I mean, he's had a 15, 20-year career in sales as well. He was in the Marines. He's put together a really good transition plan for anybody who's interested in going into sales to train them on many of the tools, many of the philosophies, many of the, 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 the key skills. He's really put a card, card together, a training plan. I think it's over eight or ten weeks. Mm. And then he well, effectively offers them to companies. And, and you know, we, we, we pay a little bit of money for that skill set. There is an advantage to the, to the employer that there are often veteran benefits uh, that can offset the, the cost. So he's really doing a training and recruiting exercise, um, but a good organization where you're going to, aside from just picking up at least our first veteran who's come through that program, we'll, we'll tap into those folks because they're, they're going to provide some sales training to my organization. So any, I'd say anybody who is uh, looking to hire sales people with um, and, and open to a military background, you know, what we, what we, expect there and what we believe we have with Devon is drive, responsibility, the ability to take on instructions, um, self-reliance, hmm. 
the other attributes. Of course, and then Devon, uh, you know, we're, we're impressed with, with, with what he brought to the table and what he learned at sales the team. So. Love that. And, and so if you're listening to veterans and maybe you're new to sales or business development or what, you know, whatever the word of the day is, check it out. Because not only is it, can it be lucrative if you get really good at it, it can also, if you master sales, uh, whether it's technology or, or, or anything else, it's an excellent, uh, it'll help you up the ladder, right? Leaders that can right. sell and drive and create right. revenue, lots of upward mobility. So check that out. Sales Platoon, uh, also check out that resource. We'll try to add that as a show note. The other thing I want to add as a show note, because that, es- that Esker podcast featuring the veteran teams, we'll in- include that as a direct link. That was a great right. episode. Now, we've mentioned Esker a couple times. Let's c- connect the dots for folks. Uh, Dan, what does Esker do and what do you do? We should describe it as a software company. And what I like to say is our technology is used by companies all around the world. And what they're trying to do, especially in these COVID times, is be as efficient as they can. And that means take uh, freeing up their customer service staff or their staff in accounts receivable or collections to be rock stars. So rather than have to do lots of manual uh, data entry or lots of manual mundane work, provide their staff with the ability to do really more interesting work and automate some of those processes. What does that mean, ultimately? Better experience for customers, better control on where money is being spent within the organization, and the ability to collect money. And right now, if you think about many of the, even just today I heard this, there's there's companies in California that have to shut their doors. So cash flow is becoming tougher because those companies that are shutting their doors may pay later. So enterprises need technology to try and help collect their money faster to have more visibility well we're at risk so that's that i like to say what we're why finance and digital leaders would turn to rescuers is they're trying to free up their people through technology now during covid the real winner if if there is a winner so to speak um you know i don't mean to come across as um in the wrong manner i realize a lot of people have been affected very negatively if there's a real winner it's probably technology you've seen that in the supply chain as well Agreed. You know, that didn't come across wrong at all. We had a former guest join us and say something very, I think it was very apropos. You can find opportunity without being opportunistic. And and, and the pandemic environment has created a ton of opportunity for technology and many other uh, businesses that have adjusted adjusted the model or or innovated or created different products to to either fight the pandemic or enable the global workforce and the global business community to, to keep figuring out a way to move forward given the pandemic environment. So that's what businesses do. So I appreciate how you presented that. All right. So well, the, for the veterans who are on here as well, I think the reality is I think you, they can take strength from their training and then and, and, and the tough experiences they've probably been through. And it's a bit like now, okay, in business, this is the second or third time I've been through a recession. And you realize, okay, the way we sell will be different. But companies often spend money to save money, mm. just as they will invest technology when they're trying to grow. So it's almost a bit like, well, you've been around the track. You'll get through this, most probably, and, and, and don't forget that you've been through tough times before. That's my advice. Love that. You can draw a lot from that, those military experiences and apply them to business to get through the good times and the bad times. Well put, right. Dan. All right, let's make sure folks know how to connect with Dan Reeve and Esker. LinkedIn is probably the easiest mechanism. Or email daniel.reeve at esker, that's echo sierra kilo echo romeo.com. 
Awesome. Of course, we'll make that easy. We'll put that uh, those uh, hyperlinks in the show notes all after right. that one click to connect with Dan because I'm sure you're going to want to. So we just scratched the surface. He's got a lot more stories than what he, he shared here today. But always a pleasure, Dan. You know, I think this is your third appearance with us here. We've enjoyed each of them. Uh, I right. appreciate your approach with these. And, and very selfishly, I uh, enjoyed your military-focused conversation here today. I think there's a lot of good stuff that, that – um, our, our men and women in uniform can can learn from and, and help them move forward as they you know transition and, and get into the workforce. So I really appreciate your time here today. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks. All right. So big thanks to Dan Reeve with Esker. Again, connect with him and, and check out the company and, and the podcast we're going to put in the show notes. And for those of you that may be interested in sales, the Sales Platoon organization. Uh, beyond that, hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, you can find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Search for Veteran Voices, and again, it's free to subscribe. Hey, if you've got a, a story to tell, if you're a veteran or a military spouse or a veteran advocate or maybe you lead a, a nonprofit that, that helps veterans, hey, reach out. We'd love to help you tell your story. You can find us, of course, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. Try to work into the production schedule. Finally, hey, challenge you like we challenge our entire team here at veteran voices and supply chain now do good give forward be the change that's needed and on that note we'll see you next time here on veteran voices thanks everybody